If you would please turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 5. We'll look this evening at verses 1 and 2. The text is printed in your bulletin. It's also on page 1737 of your pew Bibles. Hear again the word of God Almighty. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we ask that you would anoint your word by your Holy Spirit, that you would give us confidence in it, that you would make our hearts inclined to believe it. That, Father, in believing your word, we would be saved. We ask for help in the preaching of it, that you would help me to proclaim your truth and to honor you and bless your people. Father, we ask again your help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Leaving chapter 4, coming now into chapter 5, we see still a connection with justification. However, what we see with regard to justification is that it is something that has gone before. It is antecedent to what will be spoken of in these words of chapter 5. And really what you see here are three blessings, three additional blessings which accompany justification by faith. So three blessings that accompany justification. If you look at the text for a moment, you can circle these three words, and these will serve as our points this evening. Number one is peace, there in verse one. Number two is grace, in verse two. And number three is hope, in verse two. So peace, grace, and hope. These will be our three points this evening. And the first of these is this, beloved, you have peace with God. You have, present tense, peace with God. Now the therefore at the beginning of verse 1 follows, of course, from chapter 4, verses 24 and 25, in which we read, It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up our Lord Jesus from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. And he picks up, Therefore, having been justified by faith, We now have peace with God. That is to say, on the basis of a past action, God's justifying of a sinner by faith, there is a present condition in which believers find themselves. We have peace with God. Very simply, when you believed in God who raised Jesus from the dead, you were justified. When you were justified, you now entered into the status of peace with God. Now, the word peace, of course, means absence of hostility or conflict and the presence of prosperity. We have to look at peace negatively speaking in the sense, what does peace exclude? And then positively, what does peace include? Negatively, peace means there is no enmity, hostility, danger, dread, terror, etc., right? No conflict. Positively speaking, though, peace in the Bible often entails prosperity, Goodness, wellness, wholeness, harmony, peace of mind, 
Even sometimes having all the necessary provisions. So peace has these qualities of things that are lacking, things that we do not want, and things that we do want are present. Notice here in verse 1 that this peace is not just any kind of peace, however. It is peace with God. Now, why would man need peace with God? Many men do not understand that God is, in fact, at war with them. It is not merely the case, beloved, that man is at war with God. Although we see that in our sins, we are making war with our maker. But it is actually the case, as we've been reading in Romans, that God himself is at war with mankind. Now, he could certainly destroy mankind entirely, but he has not done so yet. He is patient and long-suffering. But the wrath of God that is revealed from heaven against the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men is God's warring against mankind. God cannot be at peace with sin. God is holy and just. God is entirely upright. Therefore, he cannot be at peace with sin. Now, when we speak of peace with God, there is an objective component to it, outside of us, and a subjective component, inside of us. We'll look first at the objective The enmity that God has towards man is due entirely to man's sin. There is nothing else that provokes God to war with man except for our sin. Right? It's not merely because we are creatures or merely because we are foolish or small or dust or any of those other things. God is quite tolerant of all of those weaknesses. However, sin, transgression of his holy law, rebellion, the replacing of him with idols, the carrying on and the breaking of his commandments, those provoke God to wrath. And that wrath then is his enmity toward us. So God cannot make peace with sin. It would be a false peace. On the other hand, if that sin, the sole cause of the enmity, if that sin is atoned for, by a sacrifice, and the sinner is forgiven, then God is no longer hostile to the sinner. You see, the goodness and kindness of God are such that as soon as the obstacle of sin is removed, the enmity between God and man is resolved. God is immediately our friend when we are forgiven. God declares peace with us, such that He is no longer opposed to us. Hear me on this, Christian. While you are yet a sinner, you are still sinning, you still have remaining corruption in you. If you have believed in the God who raised our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, you have been justified. And if you have been justified, you have peace with God, meaning God is no longer your enemy. It has been said of the U.S. Marines that you can have no worse enemy and no better friend. Well, that's probably true in some sense, but I would say that certainly it is more true with God. And that to say, you cannot have a worse enemy than God Almighty. He's a forever enemy. When God is an enemy, he is an enemy all the way. This morning, Pastor Heupel talked about it. He hates them in his soul. And God is an enemy forever, eternal, unending. And he's all-powerful. 
who would make war with an undefeatable enemy? Well, that's what mankind has done. On the other hand, you cannot have a better friend than God. All of those same qualities, all of those same characteristics, the power and the eternity and all of these things are present in God's friendship. And when he declares peace, it is not just neutrality that you have with him. You are one of two categories. You are either enemy or friend. And if you are friend, you are a friend all the way and for all the time. So that's the objective peace. Objectively speaking, outside of yourself, the moment you believe, you are justified. And immediately upon your justification, you have peace with God. Now there is a subjective aspect to it. There is a sense in which we must perceive and experience this peace. Sometimes this is called peace of conscience. We've read about the conscience already in the book of Romans. Right? Our consciences themselves accuse and excuse us, right? Because our conscience are the inward witness of God's holy law. And when we break his law, our conscience lets us know. When we've offended him, our conscience warns us. We know in our conscience, at least if it's working correctly, we know that we have provoked God. Now, this subjective aspect of peace sometimes does not correspond to the objective aspect of peace. You see, we ought to feel at peace with God and no longer fear and dread his judgment in the same way as once when we are unjustified, right? If we are, in fact, justified, if we have believed in his Son, we are justified, our sins are forgiven, it's been counted to us as righteousness, therefore we have peace and we should Feel peace. Unfortunately, we do not always feel that peace. Now, there are a variety of reasons for that. Sometimes it's ignorance. We don't know better. Sometimes it's because of remaining sin. Sometimes God is humbling us. Sometimes we are not pursuing that peace. I want to tell you a story you maybe heard about Hiro Onoda. He was a Japanese soldier in World War II, stationed in the Philippine Islands. Now, in August of 1945, when the war ended between the Allies and Japan, Onoda did not surrender. He did not receive the command to surrender. And so he carried on, living out his own personal war, living in the wilderness in the Philippines, occasionally fighting with the Philippine police and farmers and a few fishermen. Over the course of time, days and months and indeed years went by and leaflets were dropped announcing the surrender. There's peace. He did not believe the leaflets. Correspondence was sent to him from family members and people in Japan. The emperor signed off on a message to him and it was delivered to him. He did not believe it. And so he continued having war against an imaginary enemy in a war that really did not exist, living by himself, fighting a war that had long since been declared over. Well, finally, in March of 1974, 29 years later, Hero was visited by his former commanding officer and commanded to surrender, and he did. Now, on the one hand, you can sort of admire this man's commitment to his duty. 
There's something remarkable about that. But you know, if you think about it, the man wasted three decades. Three decades at war when there was no war. And you imagine what he might have done in that time otherwise. He may have started a family. He may have gone on to do many things. And the notion of being at war when peace had been declared seems tragic. I don't know, Christian, do you sometimes doubt the peace that God has with you? Right? Do you sometimes disbelieve it? I just want you to hear this. Hear and believe these words. On higher authority than a commanding officer, this comes from God himself, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When you doubt, this is what you tell yourself. Have you been justified? How do you know if you've been justified, beloved? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as he's offered to you in the gospel? Do you rest and receive upon him alone? If so, you are justified. And if you are justified, you have peace with God. Therefore, you must bring your feelings and your conscience in line with the objective facts of the matter. If God has declared peace, you need to accept that peace or you will be wasting your life. Now, before we move on from the peace of God, we must consider the person through whom we obtain that peace. Paul says, you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This refers to something that we call union with Christ. It means that those of you who believe in Jesus are legally and spiritually bound to him. It means that you have died And your life is hidden in Christ with God. It means that you have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. And the life which you now live, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Because you are so united to Christ in this way, God is pleased to accept you even as he is pleased to accept his own beloved son. And he accepts and blesses you according to the righteousness and merits of his son. Now this concept of union with Christ will be repeated several times in Romans, and I'm just going to give a short preview of some of the things that come to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Joy in God come to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Romans 5, 11. Eternal life comes to us through Christ Jesus, our Lord. We give thanks to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We experience and have the love of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then, of course, here in chapter 5, verse 2. We have access and standing in grace through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So it is all to say that our continuance in the peace of God is obtained the same way that our entrance into it was, by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. This brings us to our second point. You have, in addition to peace with God, you have entered into and stand in grace. And this is in verse 2. 
First, you have access. Now, this verb, access, is actually in the perfect tense. We could translate it like the Tyndale Bible, or excuse me, the Geneva Bible. You have had access. It refers to an action that has been completed in the past. Usually with the perfect tense, it's an action that's completed in the past, but its results continue up into the present. For example, if my wife came to me and said, the kids have made a mess of the kitchen. She does not just mean to say that one time at some point in history, the kids made a mess in the kitchen. What she means to say is that the kids have made a mess, and that mess continues even now. And that is what the Lord is saying here. You have had access, right? But that continues even now. Through Jesus Christ, you have entered into grace, and there you are right now. That continues. That access continues But it began for you. You perceived it when you believed. Now, we'll call this a a state of grace. We talk about water existing in three states, right? Water can exist as a liquid, as a solid, or as a gas. Well, human beings can really exist in four states, if you will take the analogy. We can exist in the state of innocence. Well, we could have. One of us did. Our Our father Adam, rather. This is man when he was originally created. He was in a state of innocence. He was made upright and righteous. He knew no sin. He was not guilty. He was on friendly terms with God from the very start. That's man in the state of innocence. As we know, that did not continue for man, and that brought man into the second state. And this is man in the state of sin. This is mankind's state after the fall. In this state, man is guilty of transgression. In fact, he's in bondage to sin, and he is at enmity with God and subject to God's wrath and curse. And he's subject to all the miseries of this life and the life to come. That's the state of sin. That is the state in which most of mankind operates in most of the time. I do want you to be aware, though, when we talk about the states of mankind, we only exist in one state at a time. Now, the fourth state, we'll skip the third state for just a moment. The fourth state of mankind is that eternal state. Sometimes we call this the state of glory because for the saints, it means that final status of glorification. For the wicked, it means damnation. The eternal state is that man will either be perfectly happy forever or perfectly miserable forever. But we are not yet to the eternal state. We, Christians, live in the third state, which we call the state of grace. The state of grace refers to fallen but forgiven men. We exist in God's favor, enjoying his blessings. And that state of grace begins with what we call regeneration. The Lord calling us to life. And that produces in us faith in Jesus Christ. And then that unites us to Jesus Christ. And then being united to Jesus Christ, we are justified. And then being justified, we are adopted. And being adopted, we begin to be sanctified. And being sanctified, we are kept by God's power. The state of grace is that that status in a human's life in which God the Holy Spirit is applying to us the grace of God which was obtained for us by God the Son. 
He applies to us the benefits of Jesus Christ. Notice, though, in this verse that not only have you entered into this grace, and by the way, you entered into it through Jesus Christ, right? You entered into this grace, but more than that, you stand in grace. Access by faith into this grace in which we stand. You know, the verb we stand is now in the present tense. The access that was given was the perfect, right? So we have had access, and now we stand. You can think of the status of grace as as a, a place, a realm in which God puts us. And in that realm is where all the favor and blessing and riches of God come to his children. And you know, everyone enters into that the same way. On our faces. Humbling ourselves. We have no boast, no claim. We come in and we are before God on our knees, pleading with him. Pleading the blood of Jesus Christ to be the propitiation for our sins. But in this realm of grace, in this place, there is God looking upon his son and being satisfied with the sacrifice. He declares you as forgiven. And then he says to you, stand up, my child. You have my favor. You do not need to be ashamed to come before me. You see, Jesus has given you access into the grace in which you now stand. Significant that God says we stand in his grace. Not because we stood ourselves, but rather God made us stand up in his presence. And indeed, stand in this grace we must. We must, by God's help, plant our feet and become immovable from this grace. Firmly fixed by faith in the God who keeps you, right? The God who is able to perform what he has promised. God who upholds you by the power of his mighty right arm. You need to know that the God who placed you in this grace will keep you in this grace. Because he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Do you know that God has attached his name, his reputation, his glory to the accomplishment of the salvation of his saints. God has swore by his own mighty name. God is invested in your salvation. He has something at stake in your salvation. Therefore, you must stand in his grace. This brings us to our third and final point. You rejoice in hope. Rejoice in hope. And you see that at the end of verse 2. And rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This word rejoice is also often translated as boast or glory. It's for example, the Jews back in chapter 2, they are said to boast in the law and to boast in knowing God. The, the noun form of this verb is used when, about Abraham. If Abraham were justified by works, he would have something to boast about. It's also used to, it's translated as glory. If we look one more verse down from where we are right now in chapter 5, verse 3, it says that Christians glory in their tribulations. 
it's almost kind of carries the sense of bragging. There's a sense of pride related to it. And, and perhaps the best way to describe it is that here it refers to a joyful expression of confidence. It's joyful and it's confident, but it's also expressed. We have a boast. We have a boast in God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It is as if we are celebrating, exulting, as it were. Now, what is the ground of your rejoicing? Why? Well, here it says, upon, our our English translation says in, and that's fine, but the truth is it's upon. You are rejoicing upon this hope. You stand on that hope, and that hope is the glory of God. Hope here is, as always, just a confident expectation. So you've got this joyful expression of confidence based upon a confident expectation. And it's not just hope as in I wish, right? Like, I hope this sermon goes well. No, this is an actual, objective, true thing. You have a reason for confidence because it is declared by God Almighty. So you have a confident expectation based upon what God has said. And this hope pertains to the glory of God. Now there are really two things I want you to think about when it comes to this phrase, the glory of God. One of them is God's glory himself, God's glory in himself, and then the other is God's glory in us. We're going to begin with God's glory And God's glory, as we've talked about before, is his own inherent or intrinsic glory. God is glorious. The resplendent, eternal glory which God has in himself never changes. It never increases nor decreases. God is magnificent. He's splendor. He's brilliant. Everything that you can think of to describe glory, God is it infinitely He is the most worthy and glorious being in all existence. Now, being the most glorious being in all existence, he is owed, therefore, exaltation and honor and praise and thanksgiving. Now, that's God's ascribed glory, right? That's when we agree with reality, when we recognize and rejoice in the fact that God is so glorious. We are ascribing to him glory. This is written in Romans chapter 11, verse 36. Of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. There the apostle is ascribing glory to God who is glorious. So when creatures recognize God's supreme worth, his his eternal worthiness and, and offer to him honor, and glory that is owed to him, that is what we mean by glorifying God. Now, it's interesting in Romans that the wrath of God is upon mankind, right? God is at war with mankind, partly because they did not glorify him as God. That's in chapter 1, verse 21. In fact, not only did mankind not glorify God as God, But they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. 
So man exchanged what was glorious, God, for created things. So man failed to ascribe glory to God and so brought about the enmity of God. But then if we're continuing through the book of Romans, we see an interesting example with Abraham. Abraham in chapter 4, verse 20, who staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. You see, it was by believing what God said that Abraham reversed what we read all the way up until chapter 4, verse 20. Mankind does not glorify God, but how do you glorify God? By believing what God says. So Abraham shows us to give glory, how we give glory to God by being strong in faith. We too glorify God when we believe his word. And more than that, we will discover in the book of Romans that when Christians are like-minded toward one another according to Jesus Christ. In other words, when we have the attitude towards each other that Jesus has, we glorify God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and one mouth. So that is God's glory in himself, the glory which we owe to him and the glory which we can offer to him by faith. Let's look for a moment at God's glory in us. And we're in this in the context of we're rejoicing, we're exulting, we're exuberant in hope, right? We have a confident expectation in God's glory. And there's another aspect of God's glory, and that is God's glory in us. We read in Romans about those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth in chapter 2, verse 8, but they obey unrighteousness. And what will they receive? Indignation and wrath. More war with God, right? On the other hand, in chapter 2, verse 7, we read about those who by patient continuance and doing well seek for glory and honor and immortality. You see, as those who work good who will receive glory, honor, and peace. Mankind was made to glorify God. Mankind was made in the image, and mankind is the glory of God. And when we look back to mankind's fall into sin, we see that that image of God in man has become corrupted. And man, therefore, does not live up to the glory which he ought Man fails to glorify God, not only by failing to glorify God, but man fails to glorify God by failing to be a man as God made him. Man was not made to sin. Man was not made to rebel against his creator. Romans 3.23, which we have read before, says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This means that we have failed to glorify God and we have failed to be what God created us to be, the image and glory of God. Yet believers, Christians, those who believe shall be delivered, Romans 8.21 says, shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty 
of the children of God. So we're being taken from that bondage of corruption and being delivered into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Liberty of the children of God. This is liberty to worship God without fear and in holiness. Do you know who the happiest being in the all existence is? It is God, isn't it? And God is the happiest being in all existence because he is the holiest being in all existence. And as man becomes more holy, he becomes more like God, right? The more we become like God, the, the more happy we become. And this is what we read about in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. That our glory shall be revealed in us. And that the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared to it. That's hard for us to imagine that there's, there's glory that's going to be revealed in us that will make the present difficulties and sufferings which we experience not even worth comparing. We wouldn't even mention them in the same sentence lest we offend an angel or some other saint. We wouldn't even make the comparison. We can't possibly understand that entirely right now, but it's true. There is a glory that is to be revealed in us that is going to so far suppress anything we've experienced here on earth. In Romans 8.30 we read, Those whom God predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, this is God's glory in us. God making us into what we were made to be. Finally, God makes known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. Romans 9, 23. God makes known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. That's us. Vessels of mercy. Which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Here in this passage, do you see both the glory of God and the glory of God in us in the same place? God is glorifying himself by having mercy on us and bringing us to the glory for which he had prepared beforehand for us. And this is what I want to close with. This is your hope, that you will be a vessel of mercy, right? You are a vessel of mercy, and you will fully display God's glory as he fits you for and finally brings you to that glory for which you were created and for which you have been redeemed. And then it is, as Matthew Henry talked about, becoming more like God, we become the second happiest beings in all reality. Because only God will outdo us in holiness and, and in glory. But, but we will have a glory that is only outshined by God. And we will be holy and happy, glorifying God and being glorified by God forever. Let us pray. Our blessed God, we ask that you, having given us peace, having justified us, having given us access to your grace, having given us joy in the hope of your glory, that, O oh God, you would glorify your name and glorify yourself and bring us, your sons, to glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.